Ahoy! It's your boy, and welcome to episode 45 of the podcast. This is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm holding back a burp. Hold on. Excuse me. Uh, yes, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, if you're already a fan of the show and you want to give us a good review, do that. Give us five stars, write a couple sentences about why you like the show, and uh, help us build the audience. Think of one person in your life you think would like the show, and send them your favorite episode. <clears throat> Man, uh, I was literally scarfing down a, a late lunch, and I looked up at the clock and realized, oh my god, if I don't record the podcast right now, I won't have it up for tomorrow. Uh, your boy's been... Whew. Man, summer school is a motherfucking nightmare. Um, I just realized in two weeks I will have taken... T- I will have taken three courses this summer. One I took in three weeks. Uh, one of those sort of intercession expedited courses, which I actually really enjoyed that format. And now I'm taking communications and sociology... And uh, sociology finished this week, and uh, communications. I still have two more two more weeks left, but man, I've just had wall to wall days uh, most of the time between work and school, and uh, yeah, had no chance before this very moment to record a podcast this week, and uh, almost missed it. Almost missed the window. Your boy has to work later tonight, and uh, yeah, I will basically. You know, if this goes our normal length, I will stop recording and I'll have about 10 minutes before I have to start working, before I have to work work, before I have to do my real worky, worky, worky work. Um, man, Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton, literally last night I'm at, <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. I'm losing my goddamn mind. Last last night I was at my girlfriend's place and uh, we were making dinner. Um, it was uh, panko crust or how do you say it? Panko breadcrumb encrusted tilapia and uh, oven roasted medallion potatoes. And um, it's actually really good. A little spicy. I put some uh, red pepper flakes in the um, in the panko breadcrumbs with some like paprika. Was it paprika? Or paprika? Um, little garlic powder, little, uh, ground ginger, um, yeah, some red pepper flakes, and, uh, so it had a little heat on it, it's pretty good, a little salt and pepper, highly recommended, just take some tilapia, um, you can do it with, uh, this recipe that we found, it, you, I wanted you to sort of coat it, the, the fillets with butter and, uh, lemon, lemon juice, and actually the garlic powder was in there, but normally you can just use, like, egg, uh, you know, do like a little egg wash and then bread it with the pinko breadcrumbs. It, it might even be better doing it that way, honestly, but, um, very, very good. But I was saying to my girlfriend, you know, uh, Hamilton, they filmed it, the musical, they filmed, they put a film version up on Disney plus and, um, you know, saying to my girlfriend, we do not have Disney plus, we have everything else like Netflix and Hulu and all that crap. And I was saying, uh, we should just totally just hook up with this Disney Plus thing and watch Hamilton. And uh, we watched the first half, and I was, f- I was fucking saturated. I was like, once the intermission hit, I said, babe, I can't take another hour and a half of this show. And it's not because it was bad. It was just, it was sort of unrelentingly whatever it was. You know, I'm sure most people listening to this are probably fully fucking aware of what Hamilton is. But if you don't, it's basically the story of Alexander Hamilton, one of the founding fathers of this country. And all of the cast members, instead of being played by white people, are played by people of color. And the music is everything from its own kind of rap to hip-hop, R&B kind of thing. And uh, I think, when I think back on it, I can really only think of one white actor who is the, the King of England. Who actually, ironically, had probably my favorite song from the first half of the show that we saw. And, but, uh, there was just a couple of, uh, like when you go back and listen to, like, Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, not that, not that Lame is is an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, but you'll find there are themes and there's sort of recurring little musical motives or even songs that sort of, sort of, like, there's always these reprise, you know, you'll have, uh, or reprise, whatever the fuck people say, but you'll just have these musical motives that return and return and return. 
And so as you're watching Hamilton, you just keep hearing the name like, Alexander Hamilton. And all day today, I was just like walking with my girlfriend, just saying that shit, getting on her nerves. Or there's, there's one song where he's like, I'm not going to waste my shot. <laughs> so anyway, I was just saying that. Anyway, I don't know, man. I was sort of watching it thinking, one, I was kind of annoyed by it. Um, not that it was bad again. It was good. And there were actually, especially the first quarter, I would say, you were like, oh, I kind of get this. It had its own kind of momentum. It was cool. But especially in the last half of the first act, it started to feel very uneven. And there were some songs that totally felt like they were just like written in one sitting. And some of them were fucking really good, really kind of intricate and, um, you know, cool melodically and cool stylistically. And especially the bigger like ensemble pieces. It was just, it was, it was just kind of cool. Um, but uneven. And, uh, after like, Jesus, maybe like an hour, 45 minutes of it, however long the first act is, it was like, I'm kind of good for now. So we'll pick up the rest and see how things develop. But, um, I was saying it was kind of interesting because when I was younger, I was very much into rent for a couple years of my life. And I was just thinking this Hamilton had just like taken the fucking nation by storm and watching it for the first time, you just think there are so many people who already are so intricately familiar with this uh, with this musical. They know all the songs backwards and forwards. And seeing it for the first time and not being fully evangelized to it, it, it feels a little strange. Um, not really... Kind of hearing it wondering, what is it about this show that people love so much? Because it's not like it's great hip-hop music it's not like it's i don't know i think it's just very timely oh here's what i was saying i was thinking you know because i did theater when i was younger and i you know i i've not in the last like 20 years or so but when i was especially when i was younger i kind of knew all the musicals or whatever and so i was seeing a lot of things in hamilton that i could sort of equate to other musicals that I knew. And I was thinking, I don't think it's a coincidence that when Rent came out, it was very popular because it was a very topical contemporary subject matter, which was also taking a sort of, um, I don't want to say repurposing a historical story for modern times. Not a lot of people know this, but Rent is actually based on Puccini's opera La Boheme. And it was like, oh, I can just take that classic story and make it contemporary. And so you have the same sort of thing with Hamilton. Let me take this sort of uh, um, uh, period story, this sort of historical drama, and make it uh, put it to contemporary music. Rent was a rock opera, the contemporary music of the time. But also, <clears throat> both use very minimal sets. I mean, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of similarities between the set pieces of Rent and Hamilton. This sort of uh, sort of levels. Um, although Hamilton uses this like turntable, this sort of stage turntable movement thing super effectively. It's pretty cool. And there's a lot more lighting cues, I think, in Hamilton than in Rent. But, um, but um, yeah, just sort of repurposing a historical story for modern times. And it just sort of, you know, it just seems to strike at the right moment, right? And I guess I was also thinking this, you know, the, the song that really stood out to me from the first half was this, The King of England Has a Song. I looked it up on Spotify the next day. It's called You'll Be Back. And I was like, this is maybe the best song uh, of the show so far. But it was also interesting because if anyone who's familiar with Jesus Christ Superstar, um, there's sort of a outlying song like this one as well, which is King Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, the entire show is this sort of rock opera. And then all of a sudden King Herod comes and he he's sort of this Bacchanalian uh, character, he's having orgies and stuff, but he's also this kind of femme um, man, and he does this sort of like kind of a classic show tune type of song, which is sort of an outlier in the rest of the songs from Jesus Christ Superstar. But I just thought, I don't think it's a coincidence that the King character was sort of treated the same way as it was in um, Jesus Christ Superstar, this sort of novelty character. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just really sort of stuck out for me from the first part. <sighs> but I don't know. I um, I mean, there's I, I know a few people in my, li- in my life who are obsessed with Hamilton and are super evangelical about it. And I, in some ways, I sort of anticipated feeling like I do with a lot of things, which is because I'm kind of a contrarian, when everybody's into something, I uh, stay away from it for the most part. 
And I just assume that if everybody's into something, it's probably not that good. Um, although sometimes after a few years goes by, I finally come around to checking something out and I think, oh, damn, I totally kind of missed the boat on this. I should have, I'm sure if I had let myself check this out earlier, I would have been, um, I would have been into it as much as anybody else. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of the Harry Potter books too. I think I was just like one or two years too old for them when they came out. Like, I think I had just missed the window of like the target audience for those, for those books. But I also did have a lot of peers who were reading them also, but I just never, never got into it. It was super popular and I was just like, eh, not for me. But I was kind of hoping when I started watching Hamilton that I was going to be like, oh shit, this is awesome. So far I'd say it's okay. It has some pretty good moments. Um, even as I'm saying this though, <laughs> I'm thinking about something else, which is, is, um, so I'm taking this communications class. Anyway, it, should I put a button on Hamilton somehow? I don't know. It's fine. Um, yeah, it's fine. That's probably about the most I can say about it. It's okay. We'll see how it, we'll see how it pans out. Um, but yeah, I, in my communications class, uh, one of our, we have our sort of final projects coming up and it's basically a, both an experiment that we have to run for a week. Um, we have to change some aspect of our interpersonal communication. We have to write an essay about it, our findings and all that sort of stuff. And then we have to give a speech. <clears throat> we gave some speeches, uh, last week, which is we basically had to dissect and analyze uh, a relationship on television and basically speak about the the way they use interpersonal communication or whatever the fuck. Um, I chose the UK version of The Office, and I chose uh, the, the the Jim and Pam equivalent characters, which in the UK version are Tim and Don. And basically just talked about how they use nonverbal communication to sort of, you know... Um, uh, communicate their relationship to us because because they sort of have secret crushes on each other. It's not like those things are openly discussed. So I was like, how does the show use nonverbal communication to demonstrate to the audience, but also to each other the nature of their relationship? Um, but for this last assignment, where I have to change some aspect of my interpersonal communication, um, I've decided because you know your boy's a critic. I you know I can't talk about something without you know, offering some qualified criticism of it. And because I wanted to challenge myself, I didn't just want to do something simple like, Oh, I'm not going to use my cell phone between the hours of X and Y. I was like, what aspect of my communication could I change that would be challenging that might actually give me something to write about and think about? Because of this, it, the, if I actually choose something that's a little sumptuous, most of the work is done for me. If I choose something that actually doesn't speak to me, I might have to work pretty hard uh, to sort of, uh, wring some content out of it. But if I choose something that actually speaks to me, I bet it would actually make my life uh, quite a bit easier. So I decided for five days, starting tomorrow, thankfully, because your boy's doing the podcast today, that from Monday through Friday, I cannot say anything critical. I cannot say anything critical. Now, what does that mean exactly? I probably still have to think about it a little more, frankly. But the idea is, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here talking about Hamilton. I'm talking about a Broadway musical that is, you know, I don't know this to be true, but it might be one of the biggest musicals of all time. I'm sure it smashed all sorts of records and all that sort of stuff. And here I am going, meh. I'm tepid on it, as if what? It couldn't, like, what, what could be better about it, right? But that's just the way I am. You know, I look at things, I kind of break them down. I'm kind of a critic. Um... And I thought, yeah, that would be challenging. Not just, but you know, like on something like the podcaster when I'm watching Hamilton, but I mean, even with my girlfriend. So this poor girl, I spend most of my time when we're together, we're like walking around. I'm just kind of breaking things down, talking through my thoughts about things. Um, even as we're, we can't watch a show without me just sort of uh, um, extempor- extemporizing, extempor- speaking ex- extemporaneously about it. I just sort of like have a running commentary on things. And, uh, and, uh, that's just the way I'm wired. Like we're watching this show now. Actually, it's based on my brother's recommendation, but we actually already finished it. It's called Indian matchmaking on Netflix. And it's basically one of these, not even dating shows, but it's sort of a 
documentary style show where they take this very famous, well, seemingly famous, I don't know, uh, matchmaker from India and they're matchmaking these Indian couples. Um, some of them are actually in India. Some of them are in the United States and it's this interesting sort of, I don't know, cultural examination of uh, arranged marriage and what it means for the people who are involved in them. And especially against our, you know, especially as like a Western audience who the show seems to be made for, you know, what are our preconceived notions about it? And the entire time, (laughs) the entire time me and my girlfriend are watching, we're sort of breaking the show down, right? I think, I think these shows are actually good for us because I think, you know, as you're watching a a show about relationships, it kind of gives you both a chance to sort of, in a roundabout way, talk about how you experience this relationship and kind of by proxy, how you experience each other. Like as you're analyzing the chemistry that another couple has or what their relationship goals are, it's actually, um, uh, it's something to sort of measure yourselves against and to talk about your own values and, Oh, how would I feel in, in that situation, et cetera. Um, so the fact that we can both sort of talk through it and sort of swap ideas, um, it's kind of an interesting exercise when you think about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's just sort of funny when like, you know, you start talking passionately about shit you didn't care about five minutes ago. Like, I don't remember any of the uh, characters names. Let's say it's like Anya or something like that, but it's like, Oh, Anya, the thing about Anya is she's like this. And I know she wants to, uh, I know she's really interested in Sanjay, but I really think she'd be a better match with this guy. And you're just thinking like, what the fuck? I didn't give two shits about this five minutes ago, and here I am. I have an impassioned opinion about who Anya needs to date. (sighs) It's almost like the people who have strong, impassioned opinions about the contestants on American Idol. And I would just sit there and think, Jesus Christ, man, get a life. But damn, dude, I need to... Clearly, I need to take a good, long look in the mirror at myself. I do need to touch base with my brother about it though. We've already we've already finished the show. It's very cute. I highly recommend it actually. <clears throat> but yeah. I don't know. Other than that, I haven't had a lot of time to ingest any new content. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. In some ways, I've actually kind of enjoyed being busy. Uh, last couple of weeks have been... I, I've probably articulated it this way on past episodes, but um, conversationally, I've sort of said the same thing to other people, but I don't know what it is, but <clears throat> last couple of weeks have been really hard for me. I've been kind of depressed. Um, I've been sleeping more. Like this morning, my you know, I probably got out of bed at like 9.30, which is not super late, but it's not super early either. And my girlfriend had been up since seven o'clock. Dude, she made muffins. I woke up this morning and she just goes, oh, hey, you want some muffins? And I was like, what the fuck? She had made, she had made blueberry muffins. And, uh, they were really good actually. But, um, um, that's just been the nature of how things go. As we go to bed about the same time, actually, I went to bed early for the first time. She was up uh, looking, she really wants to go camping. She's been looking for uh, some kind of camping site for us to to go to. And uh, I think I went to bed at like 10.30 and I woke up at 9.30. And I was just like, geez. It's just a summer. My body's really trying to recover from something. I don't know what it is. But um, yeah, what am am I saying? Uh, I haven't been feeling well. I've been a little depressed. Yeah, I think I... You know, when the shelter in place first started, I forgot how affected I was by it. You know, my, I just kind of felt like my attention span, I, I didn't have much of an attention span. I couldn't really focus on anything for more than like 20 minutes at a time. And even though there's really nothing going on externally that I can point to, you know, it just, it feels like I'm back in that place again. And I don't know what it is. And I've, tr- I've talked about it with other people and they say, well, maybe it's the fact that the, the cases have, there, there's basically been an explosion of uh, cases for the most part. There's been another spike in, in uh, people who catch the coronavirus. And that may be true, but I also don't follow the news very closely. So I know a lot of people do, and I know it affects a lot of people. 
but I really don't. I don't follow the news, you know? And so it's hard for me to believe that that is what's taking place. You know, it's hard for me to think, oh yeah, I'm just impacted by all the current events. I don't know. I really try to disengage as much as possible. Um, one, it just doesn't make me feel good. You know, I mean, the people I talked to recently who are the most miserable are the people who follow the news the closest. And I know it's kind of a weird thing to say, because on the one hand, the fact that they stay engaged, or I guess there's this idea that, well, you know, ignorance is bliss. So it's like, yeah, well, of course, if you're staying ignorant, if you're staying in the dark, if you're not dialed into what's taking place in the world, you can afford to be happy, right? You can just sort of live in your own delusional world. And so I think people who are super into the news, you know, they kind of, I don't know, not that they're martyrs, but I think there's this idea that that's the cost of being informed, right? Like, well, of course I'm miserable. I'm, I'm actually expanding my consciousness to absorb what the state of the world actually is. And there's like a grieving process that comes with that. And I think part of that is true. But I also think there's this component where, you know, the, the news is not what it used to be. And I'm not saying things are great, but, I'm, but I am saying that part of what the news, the way it's, you know, the news, the way it's, it's formatted now and the way it's presented is it's entertainment. And they don't focus on in-depth coverage on issues. They focus on things that are salacious. They focus on human interest, peace, and um, uh, controversy, controversy and um, catastrophe. And, um, and they operate in sound bites, et cetera. And uh, it, it's just this stuff is, is as a, it's actually designed and packaged to make you scared um, and to make you stay tuned. Um, and yeah, the, some of the most miserable people I know are the people who watch the news the most. And I think it's because all they'll do is berate you with how awful the world is. But we all know that no one person has the power to to really do anything about any of it. And so I think the people who stay the most dialed into the news, in some ways I think they feel awful because they feel so powerless. I mean, maybe there's this thing that it's sort of, you know, it, it's part and parcel of understanding how awful the state of the world actually is to some extent, is also realizing how little power you have to actually influence it, you know? And so I don't know, is it just ignorance is bliss or is there actually something more kind of realistic about disengaging from the news? Because it's not like I'm completely unaware of what's going on. I mean, I think things that are important happen to reach me anyway, right? Because they're coming up conversationally or whatever, or by virtue of the fact that I'm dialed into the internet at all, you know, I can't help but interact with the news on some level, whether it's in my Facebook feed or whatever. <clears throat> but yeah. So I don't know. I think I'm just trying to say I feel the effect of something and I notice it in other people. I mean, as I'm talking with other people who are saying, yeah, I don't know, just the last couple of week, the, uh, the last uh, week or two has been difficult. I don't know, man. We're all kind of dialed into the same thing. And even though maybe I'm not watching the news, it's impacting other people. And because I live in communication with these people, I'm sort of affected by proxy or something like that. But I don't know. It's, I'm glad that uh, summer school is coming to an end. I'm glad I'm about to have my vacation here. Um, I'm going to be on vacation for two weeks. And actually, I hadn't really considered this, but maybe I should bank the podcast itself so that I literally have no obligations for those two weeks. But I don't know. I don't know. People have asked me, what are you going to do? I literally have no plans for myself. I kind of like that idea. I'm not even doing therapy. I'm not working. No no work, no school, no therapy. I have no plans whatsoever. It may be the case that me and my girlfriend do a couple nights of camping somewhere, but outside of that, I think I just want to go to bed when I want to go to bed, wake up when I want to wake up, and literally from moment to moment for those two weeks, just do whatever the fuck I want. If it's play a video game, I will. If it's I want to play with my synthesizer, I will. If I want to take a nap, I'll do that. The only thing I've kind of told myself, and uh, 
I'm kind of scared I'll disappoint myself, but I do, I, I would like to do something physically active at each one of those days. Because especially in the last two weeks with my depression, I mean, I have really not been active at all. And, you know, I don't, it's, 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 I think it's a confluence of things. I don't think my diet has been great in, uh, in shelter in place. I've been less physically active and I just don't feel good in my body. You know, I feel sluggish. I feel lethargic. Um, I know some people have really ballooned in shelter in place and I don't think I'm that bad, but I've, I've gained some weight and it just doesn't feel good. You know, I'm just uncomfortable. And, uh, yeah, I don't think it's the cause of my depression, but I think when you're just not feeling confident, like, you know what I did? I, it sounds weird for someone who has like a buzzed head and doesn't really have a lot of facial hair, who just kind of wears their stubble that it would, it's hard to imagine that it would make that big of a difference. But about once a month or every three or four weeks, I start to just kind of feel like I'm not really feeling myself (laughs) physically. And I always, I don't know why I always forget, but it's like, as soon as I shave my head and trim my face, I, it's not like my problems go away, but there's something, I just feel better. You know, I feel better groomed or something. I don't know. I feel more confident about my physical appearance for whatever reason. And I did that yesterday morning. It was the first thing I did. I woke up, I had about an hour before I had to, uh, I had to engage with some sort of zoom meeting for school. And, uh, and I just thought, you know what I think would make me feel better? I'm just going to groom. So I spent like, you know, it takes me like 30 minutes to kind of uh, buzz my head and then trim my face. And instantly I felt better. It's crazy how that works. Yeah. I don't know if you guys hear this banging around, but... Dude, I think p- people are fucking losing their... Well, I don't want to say people are losing their minds, but people are... Uh, people are really, um, I think we're at the point now with shelter in place. Actually, this probably goes back to why things have been hard for people for the last week and a half. I, it's, I think we've been like five or six months, right? With sheltering in place. And I think, I just think collectively we're all at this point where we thought it would be over by now and it's definitely fucking not. And there's actually no end in sight. And I think people are kind of getting to this place where they're just kind of willing to, for their own sanity or whatever. I think people are willing to just kind of start rolling the dice you know, I feel like all the people in the red states who all, who, you know, the, the fucking people who think this is all a conspiracy theory and wearing a mask is about being uh, brainwashed into the fucking system or whatever. I think those people have gotten to a place where they're just like, fuck it. Like they're just going all in on thinking this is a hoax and they're walking around without masks and protest. Like I saw some, some bullshit. Someone was like inside a, um, a Costco protesting their fucking mask wearing policy. I just think, um, I just think uh, for for whatever reason, we've just kind of hit this stretch of time where people are just starting to like roll the dice. My girlfriend's friend is inviting us to do something every weekend. And every time they bring it up, I'm just like, no, they wanted us to go camping with them. They wanted us to go to Santa Cruz with them. And it's like, I appreciate the invitation, but no, I don't want to do any of those things. I want to stay home. My neighbors are having people over all the time. And it's not an awful idea. I mean, I think people are, you know, people are practicing social distancing as much as they can. But it's like, uh, I had someone who I work with, or I should say was sort of, anyway, there's someone that I, uh, well, we'll just say it's someone I work with, got coronavirus recently because they went uh, on a vacation with some friends. And my response was, you know, there's a lot of ways, I mean, I don't want to make anyone feel bad. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can catch coronavirus, right? Like you could just, I mean, for some people, the only thing they're doing, the only social places they're going are grocery shopping, but you could still social distance. You could still stay home. You could wash your hands all the time. You could, whatever you could do everything quote, right. And still you could go to the grocery store one time and catch coronavirus. So I'm not, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad, but there's a lot of ways to catch it. But going on a vacation with your friends is certainly fucking one of them, right? And so I get it. People are at this place where they want to reconnect. They're sick and tired of everything. I I really do get that. But I think it's starting to lead people to do more and more dangerous things. And I don't know, man, we got to attribute the spike to something, right? I mean, I've talked to coworkers about it. And first of all, I'm very lucky that I live alone. 
I'm very lucky that I live alone, but people I know who have roommates are saying like, yeah, for, for their roommates who can't really tolerate this very well, they're starting to, to play pretty fast and loose with the, you know, people who had roommates basically had to turn to each other at some point when the shelter in place started and say, hey, what are the ground rules? You know, what are our rules about inviting people over? You know, and I've talked to a few people who are upset because the roommates or the people that they live with are starting to bend the rules, inviting people over, um, that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I guess on the one hand, I don't really come down on my neighbors. We share a backyard or whatever. I don't really come down on them for having people over, but it is weird because I don't. On the one hand, I'm not like a, I'm not a catastrophic person. I'm not concerned about my safety, but it's also not anything I would do, you know? And I don't know. I mean, some people really, I guess I try to be sympathetic because some people really cannot handle the isolation. And even though it, like, it, it, I feel like it is beginning to wear on me, you know, even though I am an introvert, that's kind of how I'm wired. Um, I still feel the effects. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of us are introverted, and at first, this kind of played to our strengths. Um, isolating was not that big a deal for us, and I don't know. We're a little more domesticated. We're a little more like house cats or something, but I think as this drags on, it, I mean, no matter how introverted you are, it doesn't change the fact that we're social creatures, right? And we have to connect with people on some level, and if that's not happening, there's just something that we're not getting, you know, and I think when you're juggling, I don't know if it's like three or four factors, but it's like there's the social element. No matter how introverted you are, you have to connect with people on some level. And I'm lucky that I have my girlfriend, but I, I wonder if that's even enough. You know, if we just need, I mean, my boss had to come by my place recently to drop off some forms that I needed to sign and return to them. And it was kind of shocking to see them in the flesh because I... I hadn't really realized that I hadn't seen anybody from work in the flesh in five or six months. And um, it's very strange. So there's a social component. One is I think a lot of us are just staying inside. So there's the physical component, you know, and I'm not saying you have to run a marathon every day. And I'm really talking to myself right now. It's like, hey, you don't have to run a marathon every day, but you have to do something physically active. You know, me and my girlfriend went for like a 45-minute walk today. And that's that's not bad. That's pretty good. I mean, I think they say, which is surprising to me, but they say you burn as many calories walking a distance as you do jogging it. So if you run five miles, you burn as many calories as you would if you walked five miles. I think the difference, though, would probably be because you get your heart rate up. Um, I mean, in some ways it makes sense because you are running it faster so you're burning... Anyway, I'm not going to do the fucking math for you. You understand. It does make sense that of the distance itself, you burn as many calories running a distance as you do walking it. But I think the benefit, obviously, to running would be that you get your heart rate up, so you get the cardiovascular thing going. But also, I bet there's more of a tail to the workout if you run it also, because your heartbeat, uh, your sort of heart rate is increased past the time where you stop running. And so maybe, I don't know, your, your metabolism keeps going or something like that. But, um, but, um, yeah, where the fuck am I going with all this? I don't know. Physical activity will affect your mood. People aren't getting as much sun or vitamin D. Um, as we're doing this, I have like my mood light, you know, your boy has his seasonal affective shit. So I got my, uh, I got my light on. Now I just kind of use it as a timer for the podcast. It has this feature where you can basically, once you flip it on, you can flip a switch and the light sort of stays on for about an hour. So when I do the podcast with you guys, I literally hit the button right when I start. And when it's done, I know I've kind of hit my mark. I just kind of go for like another five, six, seven minutes, however much, however much I have left to say. But now I have it even closer because I'm like, I think I need to get some of the effects of this light. But yeah, there's the social, there's the physical, and there's the vitamin D. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it lately. <clears throat> I've been telling you that I've been really interested in depositions and uh, interrogation videos. I, um, 
I literally, when the, uh, do you guys remember when the whole Donald Trump thing came out? The whole, like, uh, they were considering impeachment for Donald Trump. I read the, I don't even know what to call it right now, but the whole report that came out, I, re- I read that whole fucking thing. It was like, you know, hundreds of pages or whatever. I read the whole goddamn thing. But it brought me back to thinking about Bill Clinton. And because I've been watching all these, uh, all these uh, interrogation and deposition videos, YouTube is like, oh, you may like this. You may like that. And uh, uh, Bill Clinton in like 97, maybe earlier, I think it was like 90, no, maybe like 99 or something like that. But anyway, when he had to give this like grand jury deposition regarding his affair with Monica Lewinsky, I basically found like YouTube was like, hey, check this out. It was like his, it was like almost four hours and 45 minute deposition or whatever. And uh, it was fucking fascinating, man. It was just so crazy to see. I mean, I think when I was growing up, Bill Clinton, I remember Bill Clinton getting elected vaguely, but I remember that was like one of the first political controversies that I could remember. I mean, I remember it being all over the news and even knowing the details of it, you know, there was oral sex and the dress and the cigar and all that sort of stuff. It's just so weird to go back and look at some of that stuff and see the, the, like, even just the image quality. You know, one, if you see Bill Clinton recently, you just think, holy shit, the dude's aged so much. But then you have to think, oh, my God, this was like over 20 years ago. This was like 23, 24 years ago. And um, it's just insane to me to think so much time has gone by because um, uh, ESPN did this like a multi-part episodic documentary about it's called The Last Dance. It's uh um, I think it was Michael Jordan's last year with the Chicago Bulls. But you go back and, like, I mean, I remember all that time. I was, like, really into the Chicago Bulls, even though I was not into sports whatsoever. That's just how influential they, that, that team was as a brand. Um, dude, I was a fucking just artsy-fartsy type, and for some reason I loved the Bulls. I even went to a fucking St- Steve Kerr, went to the University of Arizona, and when I was living in Tucson, he would do this, like, summer basketball camp, and I remember going to Steve Kerr's basketball camp and I didn't even fucking play basketball. <laughs> like that's how into the bulls I was. But, um, but, uh, it's just so strange to go back and be like, Oh, I was alive during this time period. And yet when they show you the game footage, it looks so fucking blurry by today's standards. You just think, Holy shit, this looks like it's from the 1960s, but it's from like 20 years ago. It's like change happens so incrementally that you don't realize how fucking crystal clear the image is compared to what it used to be. Anyway, dude, what the fuck am I talking about? I was talking about Clinton. I was talking about his deposition. It's fascinating. You should find it. It's so funny to see someone who's... Fu- like. One thing that you realize is because whatever this upload was, it, it, it's like from the live broadcast of the of the deposition. And so every time there's a break in the deposition, they go back to the talking heads who are sort of dissecting things as they're happening. And you realize the political discourse has not changed at all in the last fucking forever. (laughs) Like, literally, the broadcast was from Fox News, so all the talking heads were these conservative pundits who were sort of talking about how Bill Clinton's a liar. Oh, and by the way, he fucking is. It's just so funny to see... One, politicians used to really rely on their... What's the word I'm looking for? Erudition? Is that the word? They're erudite. Their erudition, E-R-U-D-I-T-O-I-O-N, erudition. They were well-spoken. They had to comport themselves a certain way or compose themselves a certain way. They had to be professional and whatever. Not like Donald Trump, who's a fucking ass clown, who says whatever the fuck he wants. And I know that's why people like him. But politicians used to have to be, like Barack Obama was like the epitome of like, well-poised, um, well-composed, very thoughtful, spoke very, um, uh, with confidence, they spoke eloquently about the issues, etc. And it's fucking crazy to see Bill Clinton uh, up there having to compose himself. And while they're asking him questions, just watching him like duck and weave and bob all these fucking topics. It's insane. And, uh, but to see the political divisiveness that existed even then, the conservatives want to tear him down. The, the left is like apologizing for him when he's clearly fucking lying every chance he gets to watch him sort of dissect. I mean, literally, there's a famous quote where he says, well, it depends on what your definition of the word is, is. And you just watch him like he's fucking full of shit. We all know that there was oral sex in the Oval Office. And he's saying, so when they ask you, did you have a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky? How did you justify that? 
And he's saying like, well, uh, the nature of our relationship, which was inappropriate, we had inappropriate contact, was not sex as I believe the word to do to be defined at the time of my uh, affidavit or whatever the fuck he had to file. And you're just thinking, what a bunch of fucking bullshit. It's just insane to me that this was the leader of the free world who was embroiled in such a controversy. And the fact that he could still maintain office. It's like, people look at the way Trump operates now, and they think, what the fuck has become of our political system where someone like him can still maintain office? And don't don't get it twisted. There, to me, there's a vast difference between Bill Clinton having an affair and the things that Trump has done. But it's is it really, in terms of the process, in terms of the idea that it's fucking insane that we pretend the presidency is one thing, and yet history has only shown us that the president is just as fucking, uh, I don't know if evil as is the word you want to use as much as they're fucking two-faced and they're liars and they are, um, opportunists and they are, um, a very certain, a very particular type of person seeks to become the president. We'll put it that way. Social climbers, they want power, they want influence, um, Bernie is the only person I can think of who really seems to be, uh, you know, they, 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 they seem to really want to make some kind of social change. And yet there's something about that person that they have to be, I I think they have to be fundamentally self-interested. I was talking with my brother about this. I think he worded it perfectly. When you look at successful people, it, the only thing that's really different about them, and I don't want to, I don't want to say this is exactly what he said. He can sort of uh, clarify if he hears this and wants to tell me that I misunderstood him. But what I took away from our conversation is we were talking about successful people, and whether it's politicians or authors, um, I think he was talking about you know uh, published uh, researchers, uh, published scientists, or whatever. When you're sitting across from these people who are successful. Of course, you're always a little disappointed to realize that they're deeply flawed people. You know, we always put like politicians or rock stars or authors on this pedestal as if they've sort of solved life. Like we're all grappling with our life and for whatever reason they seem to have solved it for themselves. But when you actually get down to it, and especially when you're an adult, it's really hard to see this um, as a kid because you, you know, everything's on the table. The, the world is your oyster and you're still convinced you're going to accomplish everything you want in life. But especially when you get older and you realize how little control you actually have over your life and your future, and maybe some of your dreams don't come true, is you really start to think critically about, okay, what separates me from the, what I wanted to do and the people who actually come to accomplish it? And I think when you begin to look back, what you actually begin to realize is that it has everything to do with priorities, you know, I spent so much of my life kind of fighting myself to, to force myself to do what I thought it was going to take to be successful, but yet I was distracted by X, Y, and Z. And unless your X, Y, and Z is things like, well, actually, maybe it doesn't matter. But what I was going to say is, unless your X, Y, and Z is like eating junk food, like doing drugs, um, self-sabotaging in a million ways, that might be a different conversation or it may not be. But maybe it was... Maybe, maybe it's not a different conversation because it all comes down to priorities. Like, if you wanted to be a successful musician, but you were spending your time <laughs> where you should have been out uh, socializing or networking, maybe you were spending it at home watching Netflix, or maybe you were reading books, or maybe you were spending time with your girlfriend or your fiancé or your kids, for that matter. I don't think the takeaway from that situation is that you didn't have what it takes or that you... Well, maybe you did, but the point I'm trying to say is it all has to do with priorities. And a lot of times when you have contact with people who are legitimately successful in areas that you wanted to be successful at, you actually become disappointed because you realize, oh, there are huge fucking holes in their life. You know, it's not a coincidence that nearly all of our favorite actors and musicians have horrible fucking families. You know, even the best actors, you're like, oh, so-and-so's son killed himself? Oh, so-and-so's been married five times? It's like you think they have it all, but the truth is they don't. They have this one thing, their success in their field, and meanwhile, everything else in their life is kind of hanging on by fucking its fingernails. Whether it's their family or their relationships or their their relationship with their children, or even their fucking, uh, even their soul or their, you know, their, 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 I don't know, moral 
fiber, their moral fabric, their, you know, I don't know, their, their virtue reservoir is sort of depleted because what they've literally prioritized in their life is their success and their public persona, etc. Um, so it's just insane to me. You're watching Bill Clinton, the president of the United States, who is fucking up against it. And it's like, you just think, what a fucking nightmare. What a fucking nightmare. <clears throat> I mean, the fact that you can know that you're guilty of something, most of us would have just fucking cracked. But that your constitution is such that you just sort of fight back and you... It's just most of us... It's like if I ever got called into the principal's office, excuse me, which I never did, but it's like or if my boss ever called me into his office and wanted to talk to me about some aspect of my behavior which was inappropriate, I would lose a shit ton of sleep about it. I would feel super nervous about it. I would dread having to go and speaking in his office one-on-one with him. But could you fucking imagine being the president of the United States, States and called in for a grand jury deposition about your inappropriate sexual relationship or affair with a White House intern and being asked, and just sort of sitting there and defending yourself? And having to sort of be, it's just, the mind melts. You just think, I literally don't know how someone, I don't know how someone lives through that. And then goes on to have a career for, a political career for the rest of their life. I mean, I know his days of president are over, but you know, this guy fucking just kind of, it's like, it's like OJ Simpson fucking plays golf with people, you know? Or actually, maybe he's in jail now for something. But the point is, I don't know, actually. But the, the idea that you can go through a fucking murder trial and get off it and then just live the rest of your life without just... Like, like most of us would just never leave our house. But O.J. Simpson just stopped playing golf. It's like Bill... Everyone knows that Bill Clinton cheated and he went through this huge scandal and he has hours of embarrassing footage of himself that's available everywhere. And yet he just kind of lives his life and continues to give speeches and presentations and still gets to be Bill Clinton. It's fucking insane, man. Where am I going with all that? <laughs> Why did that come up? Honestly, I think that came up because I, <laughs> I was literally thinking I had to give this speech presentation for my communication class. I had to give this speech. And uh, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I'm kind of... All this Zoom meeting stuff that we're doing has me feeling insecure about my place. So when I get on Zoom, I actually move my computer from where it normally sits so that I get a clear background. You know, if I if I zoomed from where my computer normally is, they would just see my whole apartment. But because I don't want people, I don't want people to see my environment, not that there's anything wrong with it. I just I don't want people to see it. I literally move my computer in such a way that I have like a, a plain wall behind me where my sofa is. Um it's just more of a neutral background. But you know, I like shut down my computer when I restarted. I had my windows open. So I'm sort of waiting for this speech to start. And what I have in another tab is this sort of Clinton deposition because it's like four hours and however long it is, I've been sort of picking my way through it. I don't sit down and watch the whole fucking thing. It takes me a couple of days. Um, but it's like I'm watching some of it on the day that I'm supposed to give my presentation. And as I'm watching it, I'm feeling myself getting more and more nervous. And I thought, maybe watching someone get fucking drilled in a deposition is probably not the best thing to watch before you give a presentation. Because it was like, in my mind, I started equating the two, right? Like, you always feel the pressure of a presentation anyway, and yet, here I am watching someone just kind of like squirming and being uncomfortable, and it was like, I could literally feel my nerves, like kind of fucking rising like i felt palpably uncomfortable and i was like oh i shouldn't watch this it's like i told uh I, you know i've talked about this um interrogation that i highly recommend and I, I can't remember the name of it um but it's this woman who like killed someone 25 years ago and is a detective herself and then gets called in uh ostensibly to the, you know they misrepresent the, the purpose of the meeting they tell her it's to consult on another case but the minute they sit down they say hey do you know anything about what's her butt and this the name of the woman that she killed 25 years ago. And it is the most uncomfortable thing you've ever watched in your life. Watching someone just kind of squirm in their seat with two cops sitting across from them. And it's like the one thing you never wanted to have happen in your life is like playing out in front of you and the walls are just fucking closing in on you. And in a way that's kind of what was happening with this Bill Clinton thing. Here you were having an affair. You think you're untouchable. Um, and now you're sitting in front of a fucking television camera being deposed 
for a grand jury deposition on fucking national television. And you're just like, well, this is exactly what I didn't want to have happen. And just like everything, so much hinges on it. <clears throat> it can kind of, and, and it kind of felt like, I sort of thought it was interesting because now that I'm not pursuing a creative career, it's like, there. I don't know if I was, I don't, I don't know that I was more nervous. You know, when I did this tour with Matt Nathanson, I mean, I remember the first night we were in Seattle and I was pretty fucking nervous because one, I hadn't really been playing a lot of shows anyway, but I was about to walk out in front of like 800 people or something. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the capacity of Numos is, but it was sold out. And it was like, I don't know that I was more nervous for that or for just giving my communications presentation for like 10 people over zoom. Like, I think it was pretty much the fucking same. But it's like those moments where you're on stage, you know, I've talked about this before, but like sometimes when you're on stage, you're like very comfortable. Well, maybe I should equate it to my, spe- my the speech I gave actually for the first like two minutes or actually maybe like a minute. I was palp like I was very consciously trying to maintain because I was nervous. I was hyper conscious of my physical body and I was trying to not betray what I was actually feeling, which was nervous. So I was really taking my time with my speaking. I was using every pause I could to take a, a, a deep breath that I needed because your heart rate is sort of elevated, you know, to portray an image of calmness. And that's like when you're on stage performing, it's the exact same thing. After a song or a song and a half, you're kind of just in your element and you're fucking chill. But for the first part, you are hyper, you know, you're adjusting to the crowd. Um, you're just getting a feel for the room the sound like there is a there's a for me there's always a fear of like when i start playing and i know that it's about i'm about to sing for the first time and i normally don't speak into the mic before my first word do you know what i'm saying so when i open my mouth to sing that's the first time i'm going to hear myself coming back to me through the pa since sound check really but it's like there is that first minute where you're just fucking like, you just feel like there's not a fucking safety net, you know? And it's like your mind is fairly focused, but you're also trying to maintain. And there are very scary moments where you are too self-conscious. And instead of just going with the flow, you're actively trying not to mess up. And once you get on that track, things get very shaky very quickly. And, uh, yeah, I think I'm just trying to say when I actually gave my speech for my communications class, it was very much like that. I mean, I even remember even after finishing that tour, I remember like just playing like an open mic somewhere at this place called the Fireside Lounge in Alameda. It's a fucking armpit. There was like 10 people in the audience and it was just an open mic. All I had to do was walk up and play. Actually, I think I'd been invited to play there. And all I had to do was go up and play like three songs. I was every bit as nervous to do that as I was when we were in Los Angeles playing at, um, is it the Roxy Theater? I don't think what oh the El Rio at the El Rio Theater in Los Angeles. It's probably like a thousand capacity or something like that. And I remember standing up back excuse me, got a bird. I remember being backstage up in the wings. You know, there's like two dressing rooms on each side of the stage with these these stairs going up, and I was in my own little dressing room. And I remember being as nervous to do that show as I was for playing the open mic. And I don't know what the takeaway is <laughs> I don't know what the takeaway is from all that. It's just funny to me, like, is there just a threshold for nerves? Like, you're just, you're never going to be more nervous than that. It's just, that's where you're at. I actually heard a stand-up comedian recently, I, I forget, I forget who, but they were saying, like, um, when they, the only times that they've ever, the, the times they've bombed the most on stage were the times that they, that they weren't nervous. You know, there's something about nerves probably that sort of snap you, snap you into focus or, or attention. You know, it feels awful. It can feel disorienting. And um, it, it does impact your performance, at least at first. But in some ways, it kind of makes you ready, you know? Um, if you're too comfortable, you might not be ready for what comes. Although, I don't know, there's that whole Tao thing of like, you know, you just kind of got to go with the flow. And actually, you never, you always do your best when you're just kind of in the moment when you're thinking the least. So, I don't, I don't fucking know, man. I don't know. Oh, stretching on you. Oh. 
Dude, since I've had my birthday and I'm 35, I'm officially at the age where I can hurt myself by doing absolutely fucking nothing. I was literally in the shower yesterday, and I was just washing, and all of a sudden I just feel myself pull something in my back. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And it's been fucking me up for the last, like, two days. It's like athletes who are, like, they're like professional football players, and it's like they're out for a season because they fucking pinched a nerve while they were reaching for toilet paper or something. It's like they basically run around the field and slam into each other all the time, and they're fine. But, like, one of them, like, reaches for some toilet paper one day on the toilet, and, like, they're stuck there for, like, eight hours because they pinch a nerve, and their friend has to fucking find them and take them to the doctor. And they're out for a season. It's crazy how that shit works. Or they twist their ankle just stepping stepping off the curb or something like that. It's fucking wild, man. Anyway, I actually want to recommend something to you guys. I, um... There's this game... I, I think I've talked about video games in the past. And, uh... You know, our uh, our theme music is done by a dude named Disasterpiece. That's my buddy Rich. And years ago, when I was first getting to know Rich, I was spending some time over at his place, like, just kind of filming him while he worked and kind of interviewing him and stuff. And I remember he recommended a couple games to me. And one of the ones that he recommended to me was Limbo. And it was a fucking beautiful game. It's by this company called Play Dead. Highly recommend it. You should check it out. You can get it on Steam or wherever. But they came out with another game a few years ago called Inside. And I could never fucking play the game because it was only really available on Windows. And I finally was just like, man, if I'm going to play this game, and I, I think I got an iPad and I decided, okay, I'll play it on this iPad. Even though I really wanted to play it on my computer with like the big screen, I was like, all right, I'll play it on my iPad. And I've had it for over a year now, probably. And I probably played the game like six times. And just the other week, I started playing it again. And I played it through twice. Uh, not in one sitting, but over the course of a couple of weeks, I just played it through twice. And then literally just like last week I was getting off work and I, it's one of these spooky things where you think your phone is watching everything that you do because I'm never on Twitter. I got a completely unrelated notification from Twitter, but as I'm just kind of scrolling through the thing, I get something from Play Dead's Twitter account where they say inside is now available on for Mac via the app store. And I went, oh shit, I just played this. So I literally downloaded it and started playing it again on my computer, and it was fucking... I gotta tell you, man, this is one of the most beautiful games I've ever played in my life. If you have Windows, you can get it. If you have, like, Nintendo Switch, you can get it. And the first time you play through it, it'll probably take you, like, eight hours. But once you've kind of gotten the game and you can walk through it, it'll probably take you, like, I don't know, probably not more than, like, two and a half hours or just kind of, like, walk through the game, which is why I've played it so many times. But in, like two or three sittings since I, you know, I downloaded on the app store. I got off work at like midnight. I played it for like two hours, went to bed, woke up and played it for like another hour. And I I beat it again, but it is just like one of the most beautiful games I've ever played. And there's no narration. There's no dialogue. There's no instructions. Like a lot of games will start off. And as you sort of move, you have to learn the mechanics of the game and it'll kind of teach you. Um, and there's some of that in terms of obstacles, but it's really like you either move forward or back and you either like push an object or pull an object or something like that, but that's it. But the, the, like the, the, it's just the, the storyline of the game, the beauty of the game, the, it's just one of those, one of the few examples where you, you know, it's so easy to talk shit about video games and comic books and all that stuff because I think a lot of it is just kind of a big fucking waste of time, but there are people who clearly make games and it is, it is fucking high art. And it's like, whether it's a CD or a film or whatever, but whatever whatever games can be, however games can be raised to the level of high art, that's what Inside is. And it's just, you like, you basically play this, people are saying it's a boy. It's actually a pretty androgynous character. It could be female, I suppose. But you're basically just like walking through the woods and there's just this whole story that's taking place around you. And if you ever get seen by one of the adults that sort of occupy this world, they're going to catch you and kill you. Um, so you basically just kind of sneak around this whole game, and you, as you play the game, you go deeper and deeper inside this... I don't know if you want to say it's a, it's a, it's a corporation, or it's a business, or it's a social infrastructure, whatever it is. But as you go deeper, the plot starts to fucking open up, and they're like farming people, and it's just like... 
it's just one of the most beautiful games you can ever play. And I got to tell you, there is a twist at the ending that you'll never fucking see coming that is both funny and also terrifying. And it's just one of the few games that I've played many times that every time I do it, it's just beautiful. And uh, I highly recommend it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't know if you guys are like me where the last couple of weeks have been hard, but if you want to treat yourself, even if you don't play games, it's kind of an interesting thing to sort of do that's new. So I highly recommend you check out the, ga- the game Inside. Um, highly recommend it. You can either play it on like iPad or Nintendo Switch or whatever the fuck, but it's a beautiful game. Otherwise, man, I don't know. I think we're over an hour here. My light literally just went off. And I don't know. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna wrap it up here. I don't really have uh, much else to say. Um, I'm kind of looking at my notes here. The only other thing I had written down was uh, was it our last episode? No, last episode was not true. Before that, we had the Eurasian Babies episode. I was talking about this experience my girlfriend had, uh, where she was speaking with a new therapist, and uh, and uh, the therapist was asking my girlfriend. He goes, "Oh, do you mind if I ask what race your boyfriend is?" And she's like, "Oh, he's white." And the therapist was like, "Oh, how lovely! You guys are going to have the most beautiful Eurasian babies." And uh, that's fucking very, very. That's a very. That's 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 a very weird thing to say to people. But um, but I actually wrote about it for my communications class. Uh, we had to write this thing about uh, a microaggression. And even though I wasn't the, uh, I didn't experience this firsthand, I still felt like uh, I was sort of uh, the subject of this microaggression that my girlfriend experienced. So I wrote about it briefly. And the teacher's response, I thought, was also fucking weird. She's she's white. And she responded, uh, she always provides feedback, you know, personal feedback to you about your writing. And her response was very well-intentioned and it just said, Oh my gosh, I'm so mortified that that happened to your girlfriend. I'm so angry for her, for for her, you know, that that happened. That's awful. This woman is clearly a racist, but I bet if you ever said anything to her, she would deny it and say that she has tons of black friends. And I just thought, not that she's wrong. I mean, I talked about this with my girlfriend and we kind of both agree that the teacher's probably absolutely right. That's exactly who this person is. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm also saying it's not necessarily a bad thing. I just think as you get older, there are generational differences. And clearly this was a older white woman who probably was educated and has been practicing most of her career at a time where there was this sort of patronizing quality to being a a white liberal in the Bay Area who worked, you know, it's sort of, um, I I don't know. I I don't know what to say, except... There's a lot of racism that's gone unobserved that once people get called on it, it's very hard for them to recognize. I think these types of, quote, microaggressions are like that. Like, this person was clearly speaking from a... Was trying to... You know, this person was trying to say something that demonstrated how... I don't know. They were trying to demonstrate how comfortable they were with my girlfriend's race, but it really betrayed how actually uncomfortable... They are with it, and if they were ever called on it, of course they would get defensive. But my perspective, and I don't think my girlfriend was really feeling this, but the thing that was weird about my teacher saying that was there's also this reactionary quality to that that I don't like also, which is even though I agree with the words that the teacher's saying, there was something phenomenally weird and informal and kind of inappropriate itself about my teacher, even as a gesture of support, like wanting to... Like, as if me and my teacher are just going to go, yeah, she's stupid. Like, fuck her. Like, that's going to be a bonding moment for us. Does that make sense? Like, even though I disagree with what this person did and I wrote about it, I also don't necessarily want us to, like, bond over the fact that we don't like this person. Or even to make those types of sweeping generalizations about her. I mean, I think she happens to be right. I think that is true. That probably is what would happen. But it still felt weird for a teacher to be like, yeah, this person, oh, I'm so, that's so awful that happened, and that person's probably like this, and fuck them, and now that she used those words, but that was kind of, like that, that was the tone of what she was saying, and as if I'm going to read that and go, yeah, she sucks. It was like, I don't know, that felt weird also. Anyway, man, I don't know. There, I ticked all the boxes. I wrote down what I thought about during the week, and that's what I, that's literally all I wrote. I wrote Inside, I wrote Clinton Deposition, Indian Matchmaking, Teacher response to Eurasian babies in Hamilton. Dude, do you think I'm going to waste my shot? No, I'm fucking not. I am not going to waste my shot. I'll 
Alexander Hamilton. So check it out, dude. Check it out on Disney Plus, man. If you haven't seen Hamilton, check it out. But if you do one thing this week, play inside. All right, man, we're done. Your boy's got to work here in a little bit. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this podcast, man. We are not very far away at all from our one-year anniversary, which should fall around episode 52 or so, right? Like, how many weeks are there in a year? That's like 52 weeks in a year or something, right? We recorded the first episode on September 11th. We're at the end of July, so and it's episode 45. So, yeah, it'll probably land around 52, right? We said about, about seven weeks from now. I got to think, should there be something special for the one year? Should I have a guest on the podcast? Or are we totally cool with it just being me? I don't know. I'm kind of convinced that it should be no guest until after, after episode 100 or so. But I don't know. You guys might know better than I do. Let me know, man. Hit me up via email. This is mpod at gmail.com. Let me know what you want to have happen for either the one year anniversary or the 100, 100th episode. Uh, otherwise, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and uh, rate and review the show. If you like it, give us five stars. Write a couple sentences about why you like the show. That stuff actually convinces people. As people are sort of cruising around or maybe checking this out, if it's got a bunch of good reviews and some good comments, dude, people check it out. So do us a solid. Let's do that. And if you want to help us grow the audience also, you can think of one person in your life. If you can think of a hundred, awesome. But you really only have to think of one person in your life who you think would like it and share it with them. That person will enjoy it and share it with one other person. And pretty much we're going to be fucking hanging out with Joe Rogan on Spotify making like $150 million, dude. So let's do that. Let's spread the love. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. (laughs) Thank you for your time. And ciao. For now. Now.